0: Welcome to the Men of Valor program. Uh, we are in the middle of our uh, series that uh, we decided to do on the life guide that we use for Christ-centered support groups and churches that is published by uh, Life Recovery International down in Orlando, that workbook. At the end of that workbook, which I wrote back in the, oh gosh, 1990s, I think, I was originally teaching uh, accountability based on the book of Nehemiah in terms of 18 principles, and those 18 principles are actually in the back of the life guide, and we had a special request from our Orlando brothers to see if we would uh, talk about all 18 of them, so... It's kind of a daunting task, but it does give us 18 shows. So I said we're in the middle of it. Actually, we're on principle number four. Yeah, we're just four. really
1: warming up, Mark, uh, yeah. with, with 18 principles. We're on number four today. But, you know, this is great material and it's certainly good subject matter for the show. Uh, we have reached Nehemiah principle four today, which says the journey of healing is never traveled alone. You need an army around you.
0: Yeah, you need an army around you. So where we left off, we're still in chapter two. By the way, this whole series is uh, of 18 principles is based on the first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah. If you want to follow along at home, you can do that. In the opening of the chapter, we saw that Nehemiah was sad in the presence of the king who he worked for. And the king is um, very good at asking him questions, including why he's feeling the way he is and uh, based on his in- ability to be honest about his feelings, then the king asks him what he needs, and that's kind of the setup here for uh, principle four, uh, because what Nehemiah thinks he needs at this point to make the journey back to Jerusalem to try to do something about rebuilding the wall is he thinks he needs uh, material, which he does, you know, he asks the king for wood, and uh he also asked the king for letters of reference. That's how the Bible translates it. What what a letter of reference was in those days was uh, a piece of paper that the king would sign, and basically the paper said to allow Nehemiah to pass through whatever territory unharmed.
1: Unharmed, I think, was the key phrase. There. Yes,
0: unharmed. So it was a letter of safe passage, I think, would be a better way of translating it. So what Nehemiah assumes he's going to do is uh, travel from the capital of Persia to Jerusalem, which, as I understand it, is a journey of about 800 to 1,000 miles. And uh, when you think about that part of the world, because, uh, you know, what was Persia is now uh, Iran and, to some extent, Iraq. Of course, the Persian Empire was wide and, you know, far-flung, but you know, centered in what is today Iran. So if any of the, the people listening have, you know, have served in the military in the Middle East and were involved in any of those uh, Iraq wars, I, I always ask them to think, do you honestly believe, e- even today, that you could walk from Tehran to Jerusalem? Uh, that's about the distance we're talking about here. Tehran to Jerusalem and be unharmed. Unhurt. I mean, you'd be walking through territories where there are enemies, there are terrorists. Uh, uh, the truth is, you'd probably wind up getting your head cut off.
1: Yeah, right? your your chances there are slim
0: and none. Slim and none. But Nehemiah, who has uh, you know grown up in Persia, may not have you know completely good understanding of you know what the dangers were. At the end of the chapter, we're going to discover. That uh, there are enemies of the Jews who have been thwarting any attempt to rebuild Jerusalem now for uh, about 140 years, and at the end of the chapter, the second chapter, the enemies are identified. the The main one, his name is Sanballat, and then they always have a appellation after that. And that, uh, in his case, is the Knight, which I think means he was from some place called Hor. But there's, to me, just a little bit of sexual humor there. It's probably um, not all that funny, but he was at the Horonite. And so the enemies are going to uh, come against any attempt to uh, rebuild the city. And the reality is that if Nehemiah were by himself, they would undoubtedly just kill him right off. So the king corrects uh, Nehemiah's inability to know, in fact, what he actually needs in verse 9. Nehemiah says in verse 9, the king did give me those letters. And then verse 9 says, but he also sent with me the army officers and the cavalry. So (laughs) I think if I was making that journey, I'd feel a lot more secure uh, if I had the Persian army with me.
1: Well, and I like how you put it in the workbook, Mark, because you say we frequently imitate Nehemiah, you know, who thought he could take this enormous journey alone. The king, however, in his wisdom, sent that army that you just mentioned, and and you tell us, uh, you remind us here that we must not attempt a journey of transformation, much like our community of men here, Mm -hmm. uh, that you must not try, uh, attempt a journey of transformation alone.
0: That's right. And part of what I see a lot when men come here for the first time, they, they have been uh, attempting uh, the journey of recovery or the journey of healing alone. They, they have prayed by themselves. They have tried various things by themselves. They, of course, have never talked to anybody else. They have never gone to a group. They've, uh, in all likelihood, never really ever gone to counseling before. And they, you know, as we talk about so often, they, they have that shame that tells them that if I, if I let anybody else know what I'm dealing with, uh, they will judge me and reject me. So uh, they've, been, they've been journeying uh, through life alone. And, you know, our enemy, as Jesus said, is not flesh and blood. It's the, uh, the, the principalities and the powers. I mean, it's not the sand ballots of the world. It's actually Satan and all of his legions. And uh, I think any of us who try to traverse whatever journey in life we're on, wherever we are going, if we make that journey by ourselves, we're going to get picked off rather quickly. Uh, So another mistake that I see a lot is that uh, the men who come here for the first time, they tell me that they may have tried one accountability partner over the years. And I always ask them, Uh, this one accountability partner, how often do you talk to him? And, you know, the standard response is, you know, maybe once a week and in some cases maybe once every couple of weeks and and in some instances, you know, maybe once a month or for some of the guys the reality is even though they've designated an accountability partner, they don't really ever talk to them or if they do talk to them, they kind of talk about pleasantries. Uh, They don't get down deep uh, in terms of what the man is actually struggling with even if they have some sense that they could talk to this one accountability partner about their temptations and struggles you know what is the likelihood that that guy that one person is going to be available to them 24-7.
1: Well, that's what you have often spoken about, is the reality of the situation, that when an individual is tempted or is struggling, you know, it's at a very unpredictable time. It may be 2 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I've heard you tell the men before, so you have this accountability partner singular you know and you're trying to reach him at two o'clock in the morning and he lives in Huntington Beach California you know and you're in Mm -hmm. uh, Minneapolis Minnesota and he didn't answer his phone well where do you turn now
0: well that's exactly it and we have uh, I think several times told the story of the guy who came in the group and he had the phone list from his group which had you know a lot of names on it and Uh, He was, in fact, the guy that was struggling at 2 o'clock in the morning, and he got out his phone list and started making calls, and it was the seventh guy who answered the phone. So whenever I uh, teach this principle about group, I always think of the movie Gladiator, and there have been times uh, when I've been speaking when I've actually shown the film clip of the movie Gladiator. I think at the Fight of Your Life events that we've done over the last several years, uh, we've shown that film clip It's basically the story of a Roman general who has been quite successful, quite loyal to the emperor, who I think is like a surrogate father to him. Uh, But the emperor's son, uh, who is a very ineffective, weak character, uh, in the opening of the movie winds up murdering his father and taking over, you know, being Caesar. And uh, because he knows that uh, this general, Maximus, was his father's favorite. He knows he needs to get rid of him in terms of all opposition. So he uh, has him captured and uh, murders his wife and son, and uh, eventually he's sold into slavery in the form of a a gladiator school down in North Africa. At some point, uh, this illegitimate emperor is now in Rome, and he's, he's trying to win the hearts and minds of the people and uh, what he decides to do is create in the Roman Colosseum a, a recreation of some of the greatest military victories in the history of Rome. And so uh, Maximus and uh, his gladiator brothers, uh, they're brought to Rome, and on one particular day, they're going to be brought into the Colosseum, about 10 or 15 of them, and uh, they are going to uh, participate in the recreation of a very famous battle uh, called the Second Fall of Carthage. In that battle, uh, the Roman general Scipio, uh, who had learned of the use of chariots from the Egyptians, uh, was going to use chariots to uh, surround the barbarian Hannibal, who was threatening Rome, and uh, finally, uh, with the use of the chariots, annihilate, uh, for the final time, Hannibal and all his armies. And so that's going to be recreated, and uh, the announcer of this scene says that uh, Maximus and his gladiator brothers, they get to play the part of Hannibal and the barbarians. So Maximus is listening to this, and uh, they're standing in the middle of the Colosseum. And as a as a Roman general, he knows uh, his history, and he knows what's coming. But what he simply says to his gladiator brothers is, whatever comes through the gates, we have a better chance of survival uh, if we stay together. And what they do, and I did not realize what they were doing until I was showing this scene to a group of generals and colonels and majors and captains uh, down at the U.S. Army College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And uh, we were watching this scene and one of the generals who was a West Point graduate and knew a lot about ancient military history said that what, what was happening in that scene is that Maximus was calling them into the most basic formation of the Roman legions and that was when they would gather in a tight circle, uh, whether they were a group of ten or a hundred or a thousand, and they would lock their shields together side to side, and the guys in the middle of the circle or the square would uh, lock their shields over their heads. And when you looked at it from afar, it appeared as if they were a tortoise shell. And that is what the uh, formation was was called, the tortoise uh, formation. And so the scene unfolds, and uh, Maximus calls uh The men together. Several of them don't get it and they stand outside the tortoise formation and they are killed instantly by the chariots that come in. But Maximus and the guys in, you know, unison here, uh, they in fact uh, win this battle and uh, change history, (laughs) at least in this recreation of it. I've always loved that scene because the image of men, uh, and we could also say women, standing together side by side with their their shields um, locked together, is able to withstand what would otherwise be uh, an undefeatable foe. When I think about it today, and I think like we talked uh, just a minute ago about Satan and all his legions, that's an undefeatable foe. Uh, Luther talked about it in uh, his great hymn, uh, What an Undefeatable Foe, Uh, and a mighty fortress is our God, and all of that. And Uh, I think even Luther would have talked about the fact that we need to stay together. And from this, I I get the principle that we need an army. I think we need at least uh, 10 guys to stand with. And uh, we need to have phone numbers, email addresses. We need to be texting, calling, and that kind of thing. We can get a little bit into the practicality of this, I think, in the
1: second half of the show. I think that's what we should do right now. You are listening to Dr. Mark Laser, and this is the Men of Valor program. at faithfulandtrue.com to learn more. That's faithfulandtrue.com. Time now for the trigger of the week.
0: Trigger of the week, Randy. As I was walking down here uh, to record the show today. I ran into one of uh, the couples uh, that comes here to our center, and they were recently at the uh, couples workshop that we do uh, last month, and uh, they're doing quite well. I, I uh, It was great to see them, and uh, I'm always interested uh, in terms of our trigger of the week, not just in what is a trigger for the men, but also what is trigger uh, triggering to the wives, and sometimes Debbie and one of our counselors here, Susie Schmidt, contribute to that. But I just uh, you know, happened to ask this wife if she could think of a trigger for us. And uh, immediately out of her mouth came the word spandex. So our trigger of the week is spandex. But I, of course, asked her what she meant by that. I, you know, I know what spandex is, and I, I know that women uh, wear various articles of things made out of spandex. But she went on to say that uh, she wasn't totally opposed to wearing spandex, but if you're going to wear spandex, wear something over it. Right. I think that's what she said.
1: Well, it's as we all know, it is uh, tight and very form-fitting and uh, many times is worn by shapely women uh, who uh, have the kind of physique that, uh, that looks uh, uh, attractive to men, yeah. attractive to women uh, because of its form-fit. Sometimes it's a poor choice <laughs> by the wrong individual who... Uh, who would like to uh, have that image, but doesn't quite fit the body type? But uh, it was interesting to get her perspective because she knows that that type of apparel, you know, catches the eye of men and usually, mm-hmm. uh, almost always, creates a, a response.
0: Right. Well, she so she was, you know, really talking about things that trigger men because of the physical, uh, physically attractive nature of it. But I think she was also referring to the fact that when she sees other women wearing this and they're not covering themselves in some more modest way, it's uh, it's triggering to her, too, because I think for the uh, women, it would get them into self-image issues, and you know particularly if they don't have that uh, body type that bandex would make them look good, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, without further elaboration on spandex, we decided to make that our trigger of the week.
1: Well, let's return our listeners, Mark, to, to- today's show, which is Nehemiah Principle 4, the journey of healing is never traveled alone. We need an army around us.
0: Yeah, well, the idea of the army around us does definitely come from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. And uh, I will tell you that that of all the principles, this is the one that uh, the men initially, I think, have the hardest time with. They are skeptical, I think, and uh, perhaps fearful that it's going to be really hard to find ten guys. So, uh, and I, you know, I just use the the number ten because it does go back to uh, the Roman legions that they they always uh, operated in uh, groups of ten or a hundred or a thousand. And it goes back to the story we already told that it was the seventh guy who answered the phone. So, you know, what if you only had a group of five or six? Even more likely, if you have a group of at least ten guys, then uh, somebody is always going to be available and. Uh, if you have 10 guys, you're not going to wear out any one of them, particularly if you're needing in, to make calls every day. So uh, then the guys wonder, where am I going to find these 10 guys? And uh, that's a legitimate question. I sometimes rely maybe too much on my own stories. But when I got out of treatment, and uh, I'm not going to go into it in the full detail, I've told this story before on the show, I think, but I was told that I needed to go to a meeting of some sort of, a support group type meeting every day for the first 90 days. And uh, where I was living at the time in Sioux City, Iowa, there there were no support groups for sex addiction, uh, but there were, there were Alcoholics Anonymous groups uh, morning, noon, and night. And so I was advised to go to AA, which was a bit of a challenge because uh, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm, you know, historically a flaming sex addict, but I never had a problem with alcohol, but I decided to go to AA and kind of see if I could get by by just, uh, you know, checking in like they all do. Hi, my name is Mark, and I'm a recovering addict, is what I said. And uh, after the meeting, uh, one of the guys was talking to me, and he said, you know, Mark, some of us noticed that you didn't uh, mention the word alcohol, and uh, we're kind of wondering, you know, what is your deal? And uh, so, you know, one of our principles here at Faithful and True is that if someone ever gives you the opportunity to tell the truth, tell the whole truth. So I told him the whole truth. I said, I, I, I need a meeting. I need support. I need to be you know, working in an accountability program. I need you know, 10 guys or whatever. And uh, there are no support groups for what I just got out of treatment for, which was sexual addiction. Well, his eyes got wide at that, and uh, uh, I proceeded to tell him a little bit about my story. It, it turned out that my story was also his story. Uh, This guy had been sober from alcohol for 20 years, but he was still actively involved in some sexual sin. And so he was very interested in the idea that there could be a meeting using the 12 steps to get sober or pure or chased from uh, sexual sin. So the very next night, uh, thanks to this guy, whose first name was Mark, he also knew in the AA community down there, which is a large community, of course, that there were a lot of other men that were struggling with sexual sin. So uh, he took it upon himself to invite some of those guys that he knew about. And the very first 12-step group for sex addiction in Sioux City, Iowa, had a group of uh, 10 alcoholics, all with varying lengths of sobriety from alcohol, but none of them with any length of sobriety from their sexual acting out, and uh, me. So there was 11 of us total there, uh, and I had my group of 10, and all I had done the, the day before was to tell my story. Speak up
1: and say, you know. Yeah. I like the need.
0: You, I, I had stated the need. Stated the need,
1: but yeah. I like how you, when you have told the story in the, in the past, you have said, all you need for a support group is a coffee pot and an available room.
0: Well, that's right. Well, the, the, the AA yeah. saying is uh, <laughs> all you need for a new meeting is a coffee pot and resentment. Well, you know, and I was kind of resentful that there weren't There weren't sex addict meetings, and coffee pots and a room were not hard to find. Right. So uh, that group still meets in Sioux City, as far as I understand it. And uh, so back to the practical nature of this, what I'm saying is that I think part of finding these groups these days, you know, in 2016, when we're recording this show, is that there are a lot more Christ-centered groups. You don't have to work quite so hard. They're out there. Here in the Twin Cities, uh, locally, we have groups at uh, one of our large local churches, Uh, There are several other large churches that have Christ-centered programs in them uh, that we can refer people to. So in a large metropolitan area like this, chances are there's already going to be some existing uh, church-based support groups for sexual addiction. There have been a number of Christian authors who've written materials. Uh, Ted Roberts' Pure Desire material is quite popular now. You know, we of course have our life guide material that's available. And, uh, so uh, the first thing I would do if you're looking for this group of 10 guys is see what is already existing in your area. Uh, if you can't find one, in order to get by, you might still check out whether there's a 12-step group for sex addiction. You you will undoubtedly find, in my experience, that even though it's not uh, explicitly stated to be a Christian group, there will be Christians at it. And that's where I would start, and I would have the same conversation in a way that I had with Mark. When you meet those guys at a 12-step group, like, would you have any interest at all in using some Christian materials and starting our own group, and then you go talk to your pastor about whether or not you can have a room like on Tuesday night or Wednesday night or whenever it is? If any of that fails... I would still go talk to my pastor and and tell the pastor your story, which takes some courage, and just ask the pastor, do you not know of other men in this church uh, that are struggling in a similar way? And uh, the average pastor, if he were to be honest, would know that two-thirds of the men in his congregation are struggling with this. And uh, if you just ask him to start connecting you to those men, Then before you know it, you'll have a group of 10 guys
1: meeting at your local church. Not to mention that there's a fairly good chance that the pastor or someone on his staff are also struggling.
0: Well, that could be true. There's probably a 40% chance of that, according to some recent research. But chances of the local pastor participating in your group are probably not good because of uh, vocational consequences.
1: But if you do take the initiative, just like you've given that invitation just now, if, um, if you uh, have the desire to have such a group, and are le- looking for a curriculum to follow, right. you know we want to make it perfectly clear uh, that we have two excellent sources. The workbooks. The, yes. yes. We've got the Faithful and True Workbook that Mark wrote uh, years ago and uh, in the the past year, revised and updated it. And that's been very popular. And then this Life Recovery Guide for Men that we're taking this series from. And both of those workbooks are available on our website uh, in our online bookstore at faithfulandtrue.com. What would you like to wrap up today's show with, Mark, as we're we're running out of time here? Well, the
0: thought that's coming to me as you ask me that question is there are a lot of guys out there who think that historically they just don't like being in groups. And uh, what I would say is that, uh, first of all, principle uh, four is incredibly important. I've never known a man who has achieved purity without a group. So how's that for a definitive statement? I think that puts it all on the line. So... You've got to get past whatever hesitations, inhibitions you have. And uh, I would just say, try it. You know, Go to a group. Give it at least four to six times of meeting before you make any final decision about whether you're going to be a permanent member of that group. But I don't know how else to say it. It's kind of my Nike version of this. Just do it. You know, Try it. Go to a meeting. I think you will find a band of brothers, the likes of which you have never known before, and that will be a total blessing to your recovery.
1: That directly from your sexual purity coach and, and his, and his uh, uh, fire-up speech uh, for the week. You have been listening to Dr. Mark Laser. I'm Randy Everett, your co-host. And we thank you for joining us again today. We hope that this coming week will be a week where you will get involved in a group. You will reach out to other men who are looking for the same kind of direction and support. And uh, may this week be filled with many blessings and great vision.